In the wake of the riots at the United States Capitol and the protests from the summer of 2019, we have a lot to think about and a lot to struggle with. Today on Logosish, we are joined by philosopher and host of the podcast Larger, Freer, More Loving, Dwight Lewis, as we grapple with the complex tangle of race, religion, patriotism, and wealth in the United States. All right, we're recording. Hey guys, welcome back to season two, episode two of Logos-ish. We are so psyched to be here with you guys this week. I am joined by my co-hosts, Reverend Garrett Roca, Reverend Brian Betcher, and Reverend Sarah Relaford. And how are you guys doing today? It's been a it's been a stressful week in America, and uh, you know it's a really good time to talk about our topic for today. What are you talking about? Uh, we're talking about like philosophy, and we're talking about uh, politics, and we're talking about how that intersects like with race and religion and all those kind of stuff today. Sure, sure, but there's no stress talking about that. No, nah, never. It's all those things. It's all those things you're not allowed to talk at the coffee table uh, or at the dinner table. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it seems to be uh, very at the forefront of our minds uh, this week. <laughs> Absolutely. I say we dive right in. Well, we should probably introduce our guest first before we dive right in. Oh, that's what I meant. (laughs) So our guest today is Dwight Lewis. He is the host of Larger, Freer, More Loving, the podcast. So Dwight, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. You know, I'm in I'm in lovely Florida, um, but in some cold weather. Cold for me anyways. We're in the 50s here. It's a sad, sad, sad state. Sad state. Yeah, I know that feeling. Um, I'm sort of close to you, and uh, I actually had to practically wear a sweater today. It was actually necessary to go outside. So, <laughs> you know, I just added um, a um, what are those heat things? I don't even know because I'm from Florida. That you put on the floor. What is that called? A space uh, heater. A space heater. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just had to purchase a space heater because I was like, yo, I can't be waking up in the morning and having cold feet. And so I bought a space heater for, you know, warm feet. Yeah, yeah that really uh, messes up your day if you have cold feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really does, though. Like, yo, nothing like cold feet. Nothing like yeah, cold especially feet. if you're from Florida and only own flip-flops. I mean, that's tough. Well, I've got... <laughs> Flip flops on right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Not gonna lie. Not gonna lie. <laughs> um, Sarah, hashtag not all Floridians. <laughs> you know, we're in South Carolina and we have the same flip flop culture. Yeah. I've worn flip flops today. <laughs> That's the best part about living in the South. No, our flip flops are mustard based. College <laughs> <laughs> barbecue joke. Um, Dwight, tell us about you. T- uh, how did you get to where you are? And um, yeah, just what? tell us the story of Dwight. Ooh, what is who, where, um, me? So let's, should I start at the beginning or the end? Huh, intriguing. Do it memento style. <laughs> so um, right now I am uh, an assistant professor at the University of South Florida uh, in the Department of Philosophy. And prior to this, I was a postdoc at Penn State. Then I was a fellow at Emory. I got my PhD where Garrett's wife is getting hers right now, the University of South Florida. And I particularly work on, um, I guess, the intersection of uh, the history of philosophy and um, the historical ontology of race. So how the history of ideas um, relates to how we've developed our concept uh, of race and racism. Prior to that, um, I started my academic career, at least an undergrad, at, the, at uh, Wheaton College in Chicago, Go Thunder. So I got a love-hate relationship with that place, um, but I do think it does good things in the world. And then after that, I um, went and uh, I went to, I went to seminary actually at a reformed theological seminary. And I enjoyed my time there. Um, but one of the things I found out for myself while I was there was that I, I shouldn't be in seminary. 
uh, one of the things I noticed is that uh, the focal point of seminary, it seemed to me to be the case to uh, teach people how to, how, to, how to lead a flock. And that's not what I wanted to do. And that's not how I saw myself in the world. I was more of a, a sheep, uh, more of a more of a wolf trying to lead a flock. And I just was like, I probably shouldn't be doing this. And so I, uh, I was still was plugging away. And then I read James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Um, and I got to a particular quote that said, uh, the concept of God either has to make us larger, freer, and more loving, or we need to get rid of him. And I decided right then and there that the concept of God that I had been raised with, the concept of God that was around me was not larger, freer, or more loving. Um, and so in relationship to race, sex, gender, and all of the protected classes. And so I then decided to um, get rid of them and not get rid of them in the sense of walking along the line of atheism, just because I think, and I told everyone this before, before the recording started, that um, I think atheism is a is a very arrogant position, but to get rid of him in relationship to how the church is actually using the concept of God, using Christianity, instead of actually allowing um, Christianity to do um, what it needs to do to them, right? Um, meaning to accept ourselves and the ways that we are actually pushing on others and to try to push back against that, right? So I then left, got this PhD in philosophy, Things I I uh, I guess I hold to um, care, consistency, and hope. I would define myself as a harbinger, uh, a hope bringer. Sounds a little prophetic. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it probably comes uh, from some extent uh, from my time spent in the church. I grew up in the church. My dad actually was in the military, and he was a pastor. So just a tough thing that I went through. Um, and then we will, and then we'll move on to talk about other things. I'm going back in my story now to childhood. So we've done from, yeah, yeah, I won't, I won't do a summary. So my dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I led my first person to the Lord when I was like six, no joke. Um, I was out knocking on doors before most people, you know, I knew how to tie their shoes. Yeah, definitely was raised a little, a little different in relationship to that. Uh, my dad worked on this thing in the church um, called the bus ministry. I don't know if anyone under knows what that is, but uh, what you do is you go out on Saturdays, Thursdays, Tuesdays, and you try to invite people to come to church. And what you say is, we'll pick you up for church on Sunday morning. Most of the time, people just send their kids. And so uh, I grew up in this, in this environment of inviting people to church, picking them up. Um, and the thing is, is you're in their homes. Right. And it's a very different thing than what most people are doing in relationship to the church. Um, meaning I saw the people multiple times a week, um, you know, when their kids didn't have diapers, you know, we went over to the house and tried to find a way to get them diapers. If the yard wasn't cut, we cut the lawn. It was a very active way of doing Christianity, which uh, to be serious uh, today, I just don't see it. You know, I really just don't see it in the majority of churches. But I grew up like this very communal understanding of Christianity. And I think that's the reason why, as I got further and further along and I went into seminary, I just didn't feel Christ in it anymore because it was all about theory and not about living. And I think this is um, where the, the state of the church today. But back to my dad. So my dad was a pastor um, in between my eighth and ninth grade year. Um, he actually passed away, really shifted my life. And we're going to be talking about race. So I really want to focus on the ways that this shifted my, my life racially. We didn't have much money growing up. I uh, remember stealing stuff with my dad to be able to pay for stuff. I remember stealing gas with him from his job. I remember stealing uh, food from another job that he had. And we were, he was just getting out of the military and going to be fully taking this pastor's position. And the church had got us. Uh, my entire family, we have five people in my family, a trailer of one bedroom. It's like one bedroom, one and a half bedroom trailer. And we were all going to live in there on someone else's land. My dad passed away. And of course, because he was in the military, the military gave us a quarter million dollars. And with that quarter million dollars, we moved to Florida. Um, my mom bought a really nice house in a, um, in a gated-in community, uh, sent, my, sent me to prep school, sent my... Um, brother and sister to college. My brother became the first person in my family to get a, a BA. My sister became the first person in my family to get an MA. And I became the first person in my family to get a PhD. What I, what I, I say that because 
it's amazing how much uh, capital matters um, in relationship to movement forward, um, especially when you're coming from particular positions in the world, especially poor positions. That the only way and the only reason why, I, why I'm in the place that I am in is because my dad passed away and we were given an influx of capital, right? And so when we talk about the, the ways that capitalism actually affects us, my story is just the like antithesis of it, right? And how it has affected the trajectory of a family that looks like me too. I am black. If I look to the left, I look at my mom's family. I think every male except for two or three now have spent time in prison. This is just existing in the world this way. And so it's just exciting uh, to see this movement forward, but also know that the only way that movement took place was with capital. That capitalism is essential, right, to actually constraining people. And uh, if that is tied to the church, that means that the church is also essential in constraining people to particular positions. And it's not about building bridges then. It's not about caring about people. It's not Jesus-centered, right? And so then uh, how then do we make it Jesus-centered, right? Um, is always gonna be the question that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope that's enough, a good, a good introduction to me. Um, uh, that was amazing. I, I, feel, I feel that same struggle as someone who's worked in churches for a long time now. And that's just like, sometimes you get through what you need to get through for the week and you just go, where was Jesus and what we actually did? Um, and a large part of what I try to be committed to is let's actually live out the way of Jesus. Like, yeah. and come to find out just like then people don't like it because <laughs> no. it causes them to have to change and give up and sacrifice and for everybody's benefit. So I'm, I think you're spot on. So I'm actually going to read James Baldwin because I love him. Um, and he's a person that's changed my life. So he says, white people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will no longer be needed. Right. Um, and I think this also applies to the church. That self-acceptance is the foundation of accepting others. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is not till the church accepts the ways that it was essential in the construction of the concept of race. Um, right. We can go we can um, go back to uh, uh, the curse of Ham. Uh, also, the ways that that was used then throughout slavery to get slaves to do their work and the ways that it is still intertwined in um, the narrative of what happened on um, last Wednesday. Right. And so until we're able to accept that. Um, then there's going to be no movement forward and actively accept it. Then we get, we're, we're actually like just stuck. So Dwight, just because we're a religion podcast aimed towards everybody, what is the curse of ham? And what oh. does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So also, the curse of just, ham... to, just to jump in real quick, uh, this is yeah. going to actually drop in about two weeks, but we're recording a week from oh. all the stuff that happens on Wednesday, January 6th at the capital of the United States and and all of the sort of stuff that's streaming out from that now. So if we're referencing it, that's what we're referencing. Yeah, we don't know what other kind of insurrections are going to happen between now and... <laughs> so true, so true. Man, so dark. It's, got, it's got a lot darker in here. So much shade. Oh, sorry. Okay, cool. anyway, uh, Ham, let's go. <laughs> no, no, but I'm... I, that is so true, though. Uh, and you hear Mitch, Mitch I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say what I usually say say about his name, but Mitch, you see him, he's turning coat, his wife's turning coat, everyone's turning coat playing politics now. It's it's making me want to vomit. It's literally making me want to vomit. But that's about um, power, which is part yeah, of the power. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, but we also see this, and I will come back to the curse film, but we also see this, and in, 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 uh, Christians turning code too right now, right? Not a lot of people are, at least a, I, I have a lot of friends that are still in that world, um, right? I went to Wheaton College. A lot of my friends are still living that life. And it's funny because a lot of, a lot of them were not anti-Trump, and they weren't anti-Trump over the summer in relationship to Black Lives Matter, right? 
They only became anti-Trump when being Trump was anti-American, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I was blown. I was like, wait, hold on. So black lives don't matter. America matters, right? Mm. I didn't yeah. know what to I, like. I just don't, I didn't know what to do in response to that. I was like, how then do me being black? How then do I look at the church? How then do I engage the church? How yeah. then do I walk into the building and look at you in the eye and know that now you're anti-Trump only because of America, but you weren't anti-Trump when when my life mattered. I don't know how to do that. There's definitely been some inconsistencies in how <laughs> I've lived out the gospel. Let's just, and I can just leave it at that because if I get any more specific, I'll get in trouble just like I did on Sunday. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's the weird thing about the the seat of the pastor, especially, you know, me being biracial, like I've gotten to the point of like saying that like, like the America that I experience is going to be different than some of you all experience because some of you all may never like have to think about these things. And some folks are in multiracial relationships and like there are things that, you know, they have to consider that they would never you know, relate to, to another, to another family. So, you know, it's, it's hard when you have to like stand up and talk to like such a diverse group of people and say something like this is wrong. Um, and it's not a personal attack because I know that I'm talking to a whole bunch of people, but at a, at a certain point, yeah, you definitely have to say no. And it's uh, at least for, for me and I, I'm sure everyone, everyone can relate into some way. Like sometimes it just gets tiring being that prophetic voice, you know, yeah. saying like, no, <laughs> remember, remember the, the, like, remember we're not supposed to be this way. And we have uh, regardless of what you feel about whatever color or animal or political affiliation you got, there's a time where we have to say no, no more. And we have to consistently do that. Otherwise, people are going to be so baffled. <laughs> and they're like, all right, so the church is now not able to be trustworthy. So like you brought up a lot of what I've been yes. sort of saying. And on the why other should side they point. trust us when people walking around doing that, waving Jesus saves on banners? And I'm just like, where's the values of God's kingdom in that? It ain't there. Like but it's we- not there. But we do have really good free trade coffee at my church. So <laughs> at least there's that. It's actually really good. It's delicious. So <laughs> but that was the point where I was like, I have to say something. Because it was no longer just violence. It was violence in the name of Jesus that I know is not anywhere close to the kingdom. And that that corrupts the mission that the church has uh, to create a more loving, beloved community where, where people can live out their callings from God in a ways, in ways that help others to grow and, and to flourish. Ain't none of that happening last week yeah, at yeah. all. Yo, you just made me think about the, I hate to say this, but the, the uh, veil that last week allowed us to see, and also to some extent, the uh, connecting to the schizophrenia of the church, right? That it could support Trump, but, de- but deny um, the ways that it is um, tied to the events of last Wednesday, right? But last Wednesday forced us to see how these things are like, are are like side by side in a way that we I like for me anyways my friends oftentimes were denying it right um they were pushing back they're like oh no Christians are not really supporting Trump they're just not really doing it like no 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 and this at least allowed us to see it at the forefront it's like no like we've got people carrying huge crosses like literally massive crosses up as they're doing this thing um it's like you no longer can stand behind that veil of trump um or stand behind the veil of your vote right your vote became explicit and the question i guess you know this is a question question is now that your vote is um i guess present or people can see it now people are turning coat from their vote right like oh whoa, whoa, well let me check myself now and so i think so there's a turn there's a at this moment i think the uh the vote is explicitly being seen um, and because of that, 
uh, it'll be a beautiful time in church history, but I think a shift has to take place now, right? Um, in the same way where we're seeing a shift in America now, what do you see, where do you guys see this shift going and how, and what are the, I guess, the essential parts of being like a pastor in relationship to these shifts? Well, you know, we've been talking a lot today about living in these varied but very separate information ecosystems. The idea that there are such drastically different beliefs about what are the nature of the actual facts. And, you know, I think one of the things that you said very powerfully earlier with regard specifically to religion, but about a certain kind of humility in relation to what we actually know. Mm. Mm. And I have seen it, you know, especially on cable news. Cable news, I think, is probably the most trash news source of anybody anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's MSNBC or Fox or OAN. Like that's a that's a lie. It totally does matter which one. Okay. <laughs> what I'm saying is the rhetorical structure and strategy of all of cable news and their incentive structure is such that it makes it a very bad information source because it predisposes it to a form of speculation that then becomes repetition that then becomes in the mind of people who hear it and listen to it constantly fact when in fact this is not the case you know there's stuff we just don't know i mean but instead it, of it, saying it we don't know it. before there was clickbait yeah yeah i would also i would second brian on that right it's new the news has never been impartial never no, it has not. But, you know, what I want to what I'm trying to bring out a little bit is this idea that, you know, we're we're kind of sitting in this strange information ecosystem. And then when we think about where is the church going, you know, one of the things that we're grappling with is most mainline churches in the United States, especially have very diverse in terms of viewpoint populations you know, they tend to represent um, a broad spectrum of, at the very least, their local population okay. with the recognition that there is, you know, a historical component to this, right? So, like, where they are not diverse is in terms of typically race and sometimes class, though usually even then you see a fairly large-ish variety of people of, of different levels of income and wealth. And so, you know, it's it's in this sort of mixed ecosystem that the church is that, you know, I think I see both potential and challenge because, yeah, yeah. you know, you've got people coming together and they're speaking to one another. And, and sometimes they're even using the same words, but they mean different things. And so that muddies the waters a little bit and makes it a challenge to move forward towards something that is genuinely better for everybody and that's an interesting especially with like understanding the different types of ecosystems and now that that's sort of been revealed and how you want to shift one way or another reminds me of uh, a book by brian bantam and it's on mixed race theology uh so being biracial what does that mean for you know what does jesus mean to you and how's how's jesus significant in the way you live your life and one of the things that he spends a lot of time on is sort of the choices you have to make as a mixed race person you know are you going to uh, assimilate one way or another or try and hold the line in between two um, and that may require you to change the way uh, you talk, the viewpoints, where you go, what you dress like. And I think for the church, that may be something similar that might have to go on. Now uh, Now the church um, or folks in the church have to make this um, sort of transitional choice of, am I going to try and, you know, still be hidden in the church and, you know, pretend and say all of these things while secretly harboring the secret? Um, or am I going to have to grow out of, you know, and really reevaluate where I am and what does that look like? Um, yeah, because that's, that's a much riskier thing and folks who are in the middle, like that's the hardest. Cause now you have, now you're, you're in a, a really hard type of tension and do I defend it or like, how do I defend myself or, or just exist? Um, so I think church uh, is going to be in a, in a state of, the reckoning 
and like reevaluation for probably the next couple presidential terms. At least for me, I don't see this process not uh, being tied up, you know, at the time of inaugurations. Like, you know, you hit the gavel and like, okay, everything is done. Just like people are like, all right, 2020 is over. 2021 is going to be so great. You know, strike of midnight and then there's, you know, a fire <laughs> essentially the next week. So. Well, and I think in terms of like philosophy about around race and and where it intersects with like the church in particular, like owning up to our history that, I mean, the church blessed uh, a philosophy or an ideology about people, people from Africa and people of color in all parts of the world that said, you know, because, because we work to be done and we need it to be done for free, we're going to view those people as less less than than European people of European descent. And the world's economic system has never recovered from that ever. And just owning that the church didn't come up with that initially, or at least if I'm remembering correctly, it was more for economic purposes, but then the church said that it was okay that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. We messed up. Yeah. yeah Why am yeah. I on the right track? I hear you. I hear you. I do. I do. I, I, um, this, if we only, at least for me, if we only knew, I guess, how how much capital and capitalism matters in relationship to this, um, it's actually just insane, right? Even when I talk about the ways that we should value diversity, it's oftentimes in relationship to production. What value do Black people bring to the church, right? Production. How can you, as a believer, negate production from value? Right, because I think that's the only way that we really move forward. Is it's like you know I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know if Jesus ever like he never gives his disciples. At least maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think he ever actually gives his disciples any type of money. Right? He says, "I'm gonna make this out of nothing," or "Go to the go to the sea. You're gonna find a fish. There's gonna be a coin in its mouth. Then you'll be able to pay." Right? The things that we value in this world today are just completely and utterly, it, at least it appears to me to be devalued by Jesus. And so it's like, how, how do we get ourselves to value, like, value less the, the, the things surrounding capital? But I just don't think that we want it. Like, I don't think, I like to be dead serious. I don't think anyone wants it. And then my question is, then how much do you want Jesus? Because we know about Zacchaeus, right? You understand that money is the root of all evil, right? <laughs> Well, or at least the love of money is the root of all. Yeah, the love of money. And I, I would say if you're in a capitalist society and you're existing in it, then you're already loving money, right? Yeah. You're loving value. And so then how do we then push against that? You have to actually pu push against capitalism. You've got to actually push against America. You actually have to push against like placing yourself in these privileged positions. I was at, I was in Wheaton. Um, this was an undergrad. I remember I walked, I went to this one church. I was taking Spanish. Um, so I went to the Spanish church and I will say it's the most beautiful thing I've, I've seen. I remember I, I almost started crying. I'm standing there. The pastor, before he goes up to actually uh, give his sermon, he tells everyone in the congregation to stand up. He gets down on his knees, puts his face prostrate in front of them and, and, like, and, and prays. And he's like, Lord, allow me to humble myself and be what these what the, my congregation needs me to be. Not putting themselves on this stage, saying I've got something to give you, like I'm valuable, you need me, right? I was I was I was I was I was completely blown. I was sitting there and I was like, I've never seen this done or anything like it done at a white church. Why is that? Like why is it that always we've got and I know going being around Wheaton, every pastor had a PhD, right? Every pastor was Oh, this guy was a the the sitting theologian at this doggone church or this or that or this. It was insane. And it was always about the position that they held, because it was about production and value. And the church was was intertwined with capitalism. And I think this is something that Jesus would push against. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like every time I walk into the church or every time I like do church things, I have to I turn into 12-year-old Jesus. Right. Where I'm trying to educate the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but for no hope. And I and I wait for my parents and they pick me up and I move on and I wait 
until I can go about my ministry, right? And right now I feel like I'm in my waiting period. Like I'm just waiting until I can go about my ministry. I just don't know. I, I don't. I don't know how to separate or how to at least engage with distancing ourselves from capital. Like how do we do? How do I don't know? Maybe you guys have thought about this. I have no clue how to like engage with dis, distancing ourselves from capital and bringing ourselves closer to loving others. Like how do I? How do I? I don't know. You know. I don't know. Well, I mean, just looking through and thinking about kind of what was the New Testament church like, the people who were closest with Jesus and how did they live, at least for a little while, they lived in small communities. They uh, didn't own anything, like it was all shared. And I'm about to sound like socialist communist. Um, <laughs> um, well, not, that wouldn't be the first time I got accused of that. It might be true. Um <laughs> And they they held all things in common. They cared for one another. And, you know, their first big dispute is, hey, not everybody's getting the same level of treatment. How do we fix that? Well, we're going to empower people to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, there was a, lar- a, a deep sense of community, and that was essential to the movement. It's, at least for me, it seems like like the community is, sorry, I'm literally just grabbing this right now, that the, the community was built in such a way that there almost was no way to make a distinction between the individuals and the community, right? So if an individual was being brought down in some particular way, let's just say by the society or by in relationship to finances or relationship to race or gender or whatever it might be, the community was like, we're gonna come around this person and bring them up, Mm -hmm. right? That's a very different way than what I feel I, now it's in, a, in the church. It's community no. versus individual first. So, Holy crap. So individualism <laughs> is part of our problem in America. And John, you and I have talked about this before. You know, uh, I think it was you who had the quote of like, America wants you to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Why well, most of us ain't got shoes. Um, um, <laughs> I ain't got shoes on right now. Yeah, that's this this is a really, I think, challenging and interesting topic. And you know, it's it's challenging for any number of reasons. One is um, you know, relating to capitalism in a practical sense, you know, you have to it, at some point along the way provide an alternative that efficiently allocates resources to people's needs and wants. At the same time, you know, I, thinking about different ways that the church has grappled with this issue, you know, Brian has pointed out the the kind of utopian approach that the church has done, where you kind of wall yourself off from society or, or hold resources in common in various sorts of ways. I think in the West... I don't know if utopian is the right way to talk about that, but uh, where people, people who had means made space for the church to exist... Where they didn't need resources right and i'm thinking when i say utopian i'm thinking especially the folks that we talked about when we were talking about the book god's fields with leland ferguson i am so sorry guys my dog oh no really. going crazy in the background is she rosie is delightful yeah <laughs> but to add to add one like final little bit to the the piece of the pie you know i think often Christianity has tended to approach the question of, of resources and money from a very highly individualistic perspective mm-hmm. and a very sort of your responsibility in the faith is to adopt a somewhat ascetic approach to money where you evaluate what you need and then you recognize that the rest, really everything, is God's in some capacity, and then you you allocate it accordingly. So in the Methodist tradition, when John Wesley was running around England, he was telling people, make all you can, be productive, right? Do some work. Then save all you can, you know, against a rainy day. But then the, the last stage of that is give all you can, right? So it's this sort of three-stage uh, almost ascetic practice where he's telling people that, you know, they should live their lives in a way that's worthwhile and good for other people and, you know, helpful in some 
capacity to society, but then he's also saying other folks don't necessarily get those opportunities, and so we should be giving in return. So there's always this kind of outward flow, and there's never an accumulation beyond what the individual needs, but the onus of that rests on the individual person. Now, the the one remarkable thing about Wesley is that, you know, when he was like our age or younger, and he first started out, he made like 28 uh, pounds a year, and he lived to be 88 years old, and he worked worked until like two weeks before he died, and he lived on 28 pounds a year every year, Mm -hmm. 60 years, even though he would get paid like by the end of his career, he was getting paid like a substantial amount, but he would give it all away. Like he would give away hundreds of pounds a year because he just didn't need them. But it was always two folks who did. And so that's part of the challenge, I think, in comparing like the early church is we can't, we can't just think that everybody was poor because we know that's not true. But people who had means made space for people who didn't. They were the homeowners and things like that. So I want to bring those both of those things together because I think it's important that we have these people that are lifting right um, something like James Cone's theory in relationship to uh, oppression right those people that are lifting people up based on need based on need but the real crux I think of John's uh, of what John is bringing up is need need is the question because I think in America we have a hard time understanding what we need right oh I need a new F one fifty. Like, do you though? I need the new iPad. Do you though? Listen, how many people, how many Christmas I know got iPhone, iPhone 12s? Like, I don't know many that don't, right? Um, so the question, at least for me here, is need is a question. And John was saying how that's tied to the individual. And so then it seems to be the case that individuals have to like change themselves or the community has to like push the individual to change, right? The church community has to say, oh, well, when you're when we're talking about need, you've been lying to yourself about what you need because everyone here is focused there, right? We're all posting about what we're doing on um, on uh, Snapchat and on Instagram and on TikTok and all of these things. It's like, oh, look at what we just got. Is that a need? I, I don't know. Um, but I think the crux of what John was getting at, I think it works. Like I really do, John, I think that works. And also when we're doing that in relationship to people that have more giving to the church also. And, um, but the question is, how do we define, how do we define need? Well, you know, and your whole point about marrying the individual and the community, I think is really significant because when you lean into some of the more mystical mes- metaphors that are used in Christian scripture, I'm thinking about Paul, and his notion of individuals being tied into one body being a particular example. And then, of course, you know, like last week, really technically earlier today, because we recorded two episodes on the same day, we <laughs> had this whole conversation about the early, um, some of the early Christian ideas about what is humanity. And, you know, them saying humanity is not a single individual person, but the whole collection of people. And what is humanity is the sum total of all humans and all of their relationships together. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and this is why, you know, the if if we, if we, at least according to the Bible, this is why the, the body of Christ matters, right? It's like oftentimes uh, we're, um, we're, Maybe I even want to say this. We want to we want to have all of the uh, nice clothes and all the nice utensils, but yet have decaying parts of our body, right? It's like, but look, I'm taking this Snapchat and this with this nice uh, Gucci sweater on, right? Or I'm taking this. Um, I've got this new beanie uh, that's that uh, whatever it is, coach, and I'm taking the Snapchat, but my hand is completely and utterly, utterly decayed. I'm not standing on, uh, like, I'm literally standing on, uh, I don't know, sticks for, for legs. Um, um, and that wasn't a reference to lifting weights. Uh, <laughs> I do like, I, I think this this makes sense. And it actually just makes a lot of biblical sense too. And, um, and in that sense, like with that body of Christ kind of metaphor, like clearly, uh, I'm, 
pick on pick on my own tradition like white churches have missed the part where like we are all good with saying hey we need all kinds of different people we don't actually live that but we're okay saying that Mm -hmm. but then we certainly don't say that next part of the text that says like we can't say we don't need each other because we do and and that's what's missing in what happened over this past year that's why like like why there were so many folks who were white were super upset about like rioting and things over black lives matter protests because they don't recognize the need they don't recognize that there is there is an essential quality in each person that we have a need communally for to have one another and that devaluation is it's incredibly toxic to society. I think there is hope though, especially with talking with a lot of people over the past week, there's a lot of dissonance, cognitive dissonance going on and people are really growing in the fact that like what I saw was not okay and how I'm trying to reconcile with being a person of faith. And this is just so against what I've read and taught myself or been taught and like believe myself that like Jesus isn't the problem. It's the folks that I go and talk to on Sunday mornings or or part of the prayer group or the AA meeting and or whatever else. Like, you know, like there's there's lots of problems there. What what can I, you know, do to to be uh, a better person and do good in the world? Um, I've had multiple conversations with different people, many of who are white. And they're like, yeah, this is not, this is not it. You know, even at the beginning of this political season with like the advent of Trump sort of like being manifest, you know, in 2016, people are like, yeah, no, not this guy. <laughs> this guy doesn't represent the the party that I'm aligned with or, or, you know, my values. Uh, I'm going to vote my conscience. And they've been struggling with that for, you know, for the past four years, really a lot. And so I think there's hope in, in, in people recognizing the wrong and really starting to try to transform. And like, you know, my encouragement is to like, you know, seek community, you know, be in the, like, be an actual presence in the lives that you feel like are being oppressed, you know, and don't be in, like in a hokey sort of way. But again, like uh, to go back to the body metaphor is like, recognize that you're a part of the body and be in community with that body like do what you can and build relationships. It's a lot, it's a process and it's not gonna, yeah, it's not gonna be an easy one. There's going to be a lot of sort of like distrust or like, what are you, what are you doing here now? Again, like that's, that's really what we have to do. And that's what I encourage folks to do. Still getting a lot of angry phone calls, but yeah, that's another thing. (laughs) I mean, they're always going to be angry phone calls to church. Um, can I ask a question? Just I've been ruminating on this idea of capital and capitalism. Our doorbell just rang. Sorry. Um, <laughs> this is the noisiest podcast we've ever done. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, just thinking about how we value people and um, and sort of assign value, and it's usually tied to some sort of monetary thing, to the point that our metaphors for other abstract concepts are tied to to yep. yeah like the time one is a really classic one like we buy time we spend time we save time it's all like a monetary analogy or mm-hmm. metaphor and so i wonder how we can sort of as philosophers as christians as thinkers whatever sort of come up with new metaphors or new understanding how do we change this valuation of people when money is so tied to our very understanding of yeah. concepts <laughs> Yeah. I mean, this, I think this is like one of the hardest things in the world um, to be dead serious, um, because what you have to do is you're attempting to change an, an ontology, because I would say at this point, um, capital has become a part of our ontology. It's a part of our being in the world um, and capitalism. And so I, I look at it in relationship to, um, to to ethics. Right. So you have metaethics, normative ethics, and you've got applied ethics. And uh, grassroots uh, grassroots organizations are usually working 
um, at the applied, right? They're applying, applying, applying. They're actually doing the thing. They're not worried about, you know, what are the laws in the relationship right off the bat? They're not worried about um, what the metaphysics of the thing are. They're just doing. And so I think the way that we change it is by starting to do it. And then we bring more and more people in that community that are starting to value capital more and more. Um, you know, I would define myself as not quote unquote a Christian in the respect that uh, most Christians would say that they're a Christian. But I would say that um, probably the biggest influence in my life has been Jesus. And I attempt to live my life in such a way that it follows his example. But every time my mom tells me that she's led someone to the Lord or that someone has followed into the faith, to some extent, I don't understand it. But I respond to her and I say, I'm so proud of you for being able to lead someone away from the things of this world and to, and to value things that are not of this world, meaning to value other humans, meaning to value loving. Um, and this is where I go back to James Baldwin, to value this idea of actually making yourself and others larger, freer, and more loving, right? And I'm like, I'm proud of you. Like, if only people were doing this all over, if only, if only this was like, what was the ethos of the world, which is not valuing this, this capital, but valuing the relationships that we have with others and the ways that we're allowing them to be larger, the ways that we're allowing, allowing them to be freer and the ways that we're allowing ourselves and them to be more loving. For me, I think you have to start at the application in small groups. Right. And so you do it at like each one of your churches. And let's be let's be serious. If we want to talk about it socially, we're looking at a very different world from the 1960s with people like King and today. Like even though we're dealing with all of this anxiety, this like anxiety, distress, it was wilder then. it was wilder then. Right. And so if you're at the forefront of the change that's going to take place in the church, you're going to lose members. Truth. And you, this week. <laughs> and you, yeah. you got to let them walk out the door if you're going to actually live like Jesus. You got to actually let them walk out the door and say, you know, when you get ready to live like Jesus, come back. Because Jesus is here and he can actually, you know, I understand you're thirsty and you'll actually get some drink here. You go out there, you're not going to get it. And I think that the church, most churches are just not willing to do the things that they ha have to do, not need to do. They have to do to make the oh, church. Yeah. And they're motivated uh, by capital. Because they are motivated by capital, 100%. Because guess what? When those givers go, the ministry stop. Yep, 100%. 100%. It's just not a, it's not a faithful response. It's just a reality. So then the church is even, the way that the church is working today is even constrained by capital, right? Yeah. The actual function of, of the church is. Meaning you, and so it's like, well, you're, you're, you, like, how do you then distance yourself? Like, yeah. I, um, and I think this is where you don't condemn money. You don't condemn it. No. But what you say, is your money making people larger, freer, and more loving? Is your money making you larger, freer, and more loving, right? And if it's not doing that, then that's when I'm going to start condemning your money, right? That's when I'm going to start like being like, oh, well, you need to reevaluate the ways that you're positioning your money, right? But if you're if it is allowing the concept of God to be larger, freer, and more loving, and I'm not saying we're meeting, we're, we're like getting to more people, right? It's not about getting to more people. It's about actually acquiring and getting rid of, acquiring an awareness of and getting rid of biases, right? So that different perspectives can be valued. That's what larger, free and more loving is. But it's like, we're not doing that because we're like, oh, whatever I can do to make sure that I have uh, the right checks in the in the tithing box, right? Uh, we don't write checks anymore, but I remember those days. <laughs> I write checks. Every do you really? Yeah. Why yeah. do you no. write checks? No. You know. Oh, that sounded really judgy. I did not mean for that to sound. You know who does write you know, checks? I don't feel. There you <laughs> go. Who does There's write that. checks? Trump. <laughs> I got mine the other day. Uh, yeah. My like it just reminds me. I think it's Malachi. I'm not a. So I didn't grow up in the church. So I'm not like book, chapter, verse type person. But you know, just reminds me of Malachi. It just like your uh, sacrifices, everything that you're giving to me, all of your songs feel worthless to me so like you know it's about the the change of heart 
and we don't want we don't want hollow we don't want the hollow practices but like the real thing we want to get at is like the actual relationship with other humans and other and, yeah. and god <laughs> and it goes and, yeah. back to like this has been true for a long time because i mean there's even that story where jesus encounters someone with affluence and the guy says what do i need to do and he just says you need to sell everything you have and come follow me and the guy walks away sad because he had great wealth like that's the same thing we still walking away sad no could you imagine doing that to like to jesus Right, right. I mean, it's fine like, if people do it for me, but this is genius. yeah, yo. Like, I understand, you know, who am I, you know? But dang, so that tells you that they definitely gonna do it to you. <laughs> like, you ain't nobody. <laughs> like, they don't, they don't care about you. But um, looks like Trump just got impeached again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, wow. Man, well, I'll say this: the last four years, this I've is... used the I've used the term "unprecedented" in an unprecedented number of times. Um, <laughs> oh man, I thought I was the punny guy, and you were the fact checker guy. You really <laughs> sorry. Sorry if I'm uh, moving in on your territory there, Garrett. It was just <sighs> you know, it's the season two twist. That's what it is. That's you got to keep people on their toes for the podcast. Well, no, yeah. you need to come back with another pun. That's what I'm looking for. Where's that pun? Uh, no, this is yeah. a, now we t- we're going to turn this into a pun war. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I got I got to work uh, on my puns. It's it, it really is like the influence of capital in our world is and how it causes us to devalue human beings. It, it's everywhere. It's pervasive in ways that are so like just it makes me so sad <laughs> like it does. me too me too man you know we're all out here just working our you know i'm not gonna drop the a word but we're all out here working our butts off just throwing our time down the uh down the drain like imagine being able to use that time and parts of that time to um know you know yourself know god no others like actually being community it makes me it, my heart hurts um because instead i have to use all of that time to like pay pay for this shit um and then and then we like get the shit and we like we're like well you know it's not good enough i need a bigger shit better oh bigger stuff better stuff <laughs> um and so then um we get and, and then you just get stuck on it and i um uh, i'm trying to work through now even in myself how do i how do yeah how do i give up how do i give up my money you know how do i exist in a way that i'm not constrained by by my capital and not because i have so much capital i don't know but i'm gonna spend a lifetime trying to figure it out you know well we're all doing that i think (laughs) (laughs) dwight your your wristbands keep uh catching my attention as you're as you're gesturing oh and it has reminded me that I wanted to ask you, uh, how should I explain Black Lives Matter to my parents? Oof. <laughs> and um, I thought you were going to end the pod. Like, I, no, I was yeah, I did too. I thought that was an end also. Wrap it up. Right. Um, this is another three-hour conversation. This, this is going to be a multi-part um, episode. No, this is, this is a hard question. It is a hard question. I don't think there's a quick and easy answer, especially for someone um, that existed in the world prior to, you know, 1985. I really think that there's a huge shift that took place. Um, and it's hard to even conceive of what you've been told. And so I'm gonna, I'm not gonna go all the way into it because I think it means <laughs> it's gonna be a long conversation. Um, but there's a paradigm shift that has taken place um, for sure in relationship to race relations, not only in America, Um, but all over the globe. And because of that, we're able to perceive of the fact that uh, there might be difference that I don't understand. And I will give you one thing that you can say, it's maybe not gonna explain it to them at all, but one thing that I do all the time to people is as I ask people all the time, and I, I say to them, well, here's my question. Can you answer this? Either the majority of women are liars or sexism exists. Or what you're telling me is that you know what it's like to be a woman more than women. 
right? So if women say that their lives don't seem to matter, then maybe that's, maybe that's correct. Either racism exists or the majority of black people are liars. Or what you're saying is you know what it's like to be black more than black people. And so it's just, it's, it's just a very arrogant position um, and it's a position that comes out of ignorance, a position that comes out of lack and out of limitations. Um, and I think oftentimes we don't understand our own lack and our own limitations. But when you're in a position where you're considered as lacking and limited, meaning when you are in a position of being black or being a woman or being queer or being uh, not American, right? Then you are forced to see your lack and to see your limitations. And so guess what? You end up knowing more about the world because you're forced to see the, the edges, those lacks, those limitations. And so you actually then can speak on white people. You actually then, as a woman, can't speak on men. And then as being queer, can speak on people that are hetero, right? Um, because you've been forced to see your lack and your limitations. Um, and I think it's hard on the other end when you're in the privileged position of being able to tell black people that racism doesn't exist when you're not black. Like that's a privileged position. I'm sorry, I have so many of my students, you don't know every semester, even this semester, when I started out telling them that people do this to me, some kids still did it at the end of the semester. Um, every semester I have kids, like two weeks in, they're like, they're like, man, I saw you come in the first day and I was like, who is this fucker, this black guy? Like, who is he? You know, I'm young, I started, you know, I, I got my PhD at 30 and so I look young also, I look like I'm there, I'm like close to their age. And they and they're all they all are like, who is this? Who is this? Like, he's not gonna be able to teach us anything. And this, I've literally had a student in every course, every course, even this semester. Well, not every course, every semester. Even this semester, came to me after and was like, I said those same things in my head when you walked into the classroom through Zoom. At the end, of course, and he was like, man, I really appreciate you because you you changed my you know my my epistemic makeup because I had this perspective of what black was and I was just completely and utterly wrong. But that's the way that I have to walk into the world all the time. And maybe I would tell your parents, maybe they should ask black people how it feels to be black. Cause I'll tell you this, you know, I, had, I got forced, I got forced at six years old to not want to be black anymore. And it was in the church that it happened to me. So I told you, I grew up in the church. We're at this, we moved to Tennessee because my dad was in the military. So we were trying to, had a hard time finding a church, you know, all the churches, white in Tennessee. Uh, and so we go to this church uh, and we're walking around and it's during the handshaking part of the church. And I'm walking behind my dad and I see my dad reaching out his hand to these men in the church and they're looking at him shaking their head. No, I'm not shaking your hand. And it was at that moment at six that I said, I'd rather be white than black. And I'm sorry, when you have to identify your phenomenal experience as limited and lacking at six, if you don't grow epistemically from that, something's wrong. If you're not further along than other people because of that, something's wrong. Now, someone may be able to be further along than you in book knowledge. Wow, you read all of the books. But when it comes to this experiential knowledge, it's a whole nother ballgame. There's knowledge of, there's knowledge, um, there's knowledge with and from experience, and there's knowledge of experience. And the knowledge with and from is always going to be privileged of the knowledge of. You can't have knowledge of unless you have knowledge with and from. And so then for me, it's like oftentimes the, the information that a black or black people have to give to the world in relationship to lack and limitations that are placed on them and that other people have are just not valued. It's just not valued. Um, and again, we go back to, um, we, can't, we can't see, like white people don't see value in it, just to be straightforward. Uh, if we're really talking about the ways that the church is gonna move forward and the ways that the world is gonna move forward, it's gonna come from valuing diversity, just point blank. I'm sorry, it just is the case. And this is, I'll leave it at this last thing because I'm on a rant right now. Last thing, um, it just is the case that if, if like, if women know stuff that I cannot know, if black people know stuff that white people cannot know, right? If that is the case, and we can go across all the whole spectrum in relationship to the protected classes, 
if every group is going to know things that the other groups do not know, then if I bring all of those groups to the table, instead of just having one privileged group at the table that's able to then tell the other groups to shut up, if I bring all those groups to the table, then we just have more epistemology on the table, right? And if we've got more epistemology on the table because we're privileging every group's knowledge, then we've got more knowledge. I think we then create more epistemology and more potential for justice. Um, but until we have all of that on the table, we're gonna be in an impoverished position. And we just don't even know that we're actually putting ourselves in an impoverished position, right? Just like Gary said, I see a beautiful, I see a beautiful hope for the future of America, um, for the future of the church and for the future of the globe. Um, but it will take, you know, valuing uh, the difference that um, each person and social political group brings to the table. And until that's, until that's valued, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're gonna be in trouble. And if it's not valued sooner or later, there's gonna be an implode. So we gotta do something to change that, have to. Well, each week, we end by asking. Josh <laughs> <laughs> was like, <laughs> I'm working on my answer, John. I'm working on my transitions. No, for real. Each week, each week, we end by asking people what's bringing them joy, and that is one to make sure we end on a positive note, but also <laughs> because we think that things that bring us joy, like true, genuine joy, also make the world a brighter and better place and a good starting point for moving into that future that you're describing. So Dwight, what is bringing you joy this week? So, you know, what was bringing me joy is what I just saw on my phone about 45, well, really like 10 minutes ago, but that happened about 45 minutes ago, which is Trump's second impeachment. Uh, maybe that's a, a little bit of bad spite, Lord. You know, forgive me for that. It's just some beautiful justice. Uh, we have someone who finally gets called out for the ways that they're, you know, infecting our children with an arrogant nature. Um, and we need to we need to slap that on the wrist and say no. Uh, so I'm happy that he got slapped on the wrist. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's gonna bring me a lot of joy for the rest of the week. A lot of joy. And I ain't even, right now, I'm not even really posting. I'm not even gonna post about it. It's just gonna be in my heart, joy, bubbling, bubbling up. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I'll have to say uh, what gives me joy is probably having you on the podcast. Uh, I've been excited about it for a long time. And the fact that there are, there are people out there with the same type of hope and different types of experiences that just want to make the world a better place. And our conversation today has just reminded me of that again. So this is our second podcast of the day today, that uh, reminder. Um, and all of the people we've met on the podcast is, is, is bringing me joy right now. So thank you. Uh, and thanks guys for this. So for me, since earlier today, I've heard from several of my folks that they're, you know, have their appointments to go get the vaccine. You know, praise God, like this needs this needs to end and it only ends when people get their shot. So any of our listeners, let it be known. We want you to go get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> please get that shot. And I'm just waiting for the Virginia Health Department to be like, yeah, clergy, you can go get yours. I'm just waiting. Anticipate. Brian, Brian I love your accent. I ain't gonna lie. Yo, I love it. I fucking love like sorry, F bomb. I effing love it. All right. <laughs> man. Shoot. I do. I'm gonna steal Brian's because um my dad just got his first uh vaccination and uh I literally cried <laughs> when I found out. Um yeah. All right, John. Now time for the bombshell. What's bringing you joy? <laughs> <laughs> now, normally, I start the beginning of each episode by jotting something down. And I'm realizing at this point in time that that is a very good <laughs> Because I have nothing in my head right now. There's a lot of things that have brought me joy over the past couple of weeks. Sarah and I have been running around like crazy people starting the new year and, um, you know, working towards some things that we're very excited about. And just, I think, the opportunity to do that, you know, to have these conversations and to see people, like a lot of 2020 has brought, I think, into perspective and appreciation for each individual moment. And so 
Uh, I'm gonna go 100. deep heartfelt today and say that I'm really grateful and joyous about the people who I get to spend time with. Sarah, who I get to spend time with each day, but also, you know, whether it be over Zoom or another place, just, you know, friends, family, and so on. So, Dwight, where can folks find you? Uh, oh, and uh, things to follow, projects to work on, uh, uh, just in case people want to follow up. Follow me at Dwight K. Lewis. Dwight, D-W-I-G-H-T, K. Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> and your podcast is on YouTube, right? Oh, my podcast is on YouTube. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on the things. It's on It's on Spotify. It's on the things. Larger, freer, more loving. Thanks again, Dwight. Hey guys, I just want to offer a fact check before we sign off today. I've got a couple of notes. At some point in the middle of the podcast, Brian references John Wesley living off of 28 pounds per year for the duration of his lifetime. That is in fact true. He decided to live off that salary when he found out one day that he couldn't afford to assist his chambermaid in buying a new coat. He had made a large purchase of some art for his house and he had nothing left to help her and he was profoundly troubled by this. I was unable to verify the precise amount of his charity over the course of his life, but his income did eventually approach 1,400 pounds a year, only 28 of which reportedly went to living expenses after he decided to be more charitable in giving. Also in the middle of our conversation, Dwight mentions that he does not recall Jesus ever giving his disciples money. However, there are references to a common purse on record. Christianity has always had a complex relationship with wealth and power, often juggling tensions between practical and contextual necessities and their desire to more fully embrace love of God and neighbor. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the wonderful stuff we're working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Also, check out our new blog on the website. Have a great week.